Welcome to Coach Hub Spark Leadership Podcast, a platform devoted to exploring the future of work through coaching and behavioral change. This season, we'll be sharing in-depth conversations with some of the world's brightest psychologists, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and thought leaders. We will cover hot topics such as organizational transformation, women in leadership, executive coaching, and navigating work in today's market. I'm your host this week, Rosie Evans-Krimmer, Head of Behavioral Science for EMEA at Coach Hub, and I am, of course, a certified coach. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Taryn Marie Stayskill, founder and chief resilience officer of Resilience Leadership Institute. Prior to founding RLI, Dr. Stayskill served as the head of executive leadership development and talent strategy at Nike and head of global leadership development at Cigna. She is a leading global authority on resilience, mental health, and well-being in the workplace as well as everyday life. Her new book, Five Practices of Highly Resilient People, is about applying key resilience practices to life, parenting, and leadership. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stayskull. Hello, I'm so delighted to be here. Congratulations on the new book. I'm really looking forward to reading it myself. And of course, as a behavioral scientist, resilience is a key focus of my work and research. So I'm excited to be speaking with you today. And to kick off our conversation, can you tell me more about why you want to reframe resilience from bouncing back to bouncing forward? Mm. Great question. I love that. You know, I've been talking a lot about how resilience has been misunderstood and poorly defined. And in this sort of misunderstanding and poor definition of resilience, the problem is, one, there's a lot of conversation out there about, you know, people not liking resilience or being tired of being resilient or hoping that they never have to be resilient again. And one of the things that I get to share is this idea that resilience is actually not the problem, but the solution or the cure, so to speak. And when we don't have a clear idea of what resilience actually is, we're not able to cultivate it, to harness it, to amplify it in our own lives. And so when we think about resilience simply as bouncing back, simply as going back to a prior state, uh, the way that we were prior to facing a challenge, a change, or a complexity, the three C's, as I call them, then we do two things. I think we sort of cheapen this idea of resilience, right? We, we make it sort of less than it really is, less dynamic. And the second part is we can't recognize resilience because resilience actually isn't about going back. It's about taking the lessons, the wisdom, the knowledge, the empathy, and in fact, bouncing forward. It's about uh, being enhanced over time by the challenges that we face. And so um, when we get to sort of dispel the myth that we bounce back, we go back to a prior state, what that allows us to do is to recognize our own inherent resilience. So many people have come to me and said, well, I thought I was resilient, but I haven't gone back to the way I was before. And so when we recognize that resilience isn't about bouncing back, in fact, it's about bouncing forward, then we're able to identify resilience in our lives and cultivate and harness it to a greater degree. Wonderful. As I'm listening to you, I'm so curious to know if you could give an example of looking back and bouncing back and how that could be reframed to bouncing forward. Mm -hmm. You know, what I'd say is it's not so much about 
reframing as it is about recognizing that this idea of bouncing back is a myth, uh, that we don't go back to a prior state. And so for you and for our listeners, if we've read even, you know, sort of one article on neuroplasticity, right, this idea that our our neurons are constantly growing and changing and rewiring and regrouping and regenerating to respond to our emotional, behavioral, cognitive experience, to respond to what we're experiencing in our environment, we recognize that we're changed down to the molecular level, down to the cellular level by every experience that we have. And so I think what it is is not so much a reframe, but a recognition that when we experience these three C moments, the challenge, change, and complexity, we're not going to go back to the way things were before, the way we were before. And in fact, in time, we allow this experience to enhance us, you know, not diminish us over time. And... You know, I think one way that we can think about this, right, is we get to recast this idea of the three C's of challenge, change, and complexity in our lives. And so often we think about the three C's, we think about these things as being bad, right? And I think when we can move from a place of seeing challenge, change, and complexity as bad actors in our lives, and instead, first, see them as opportunities, you know, opportunities for learning, opportunities for growth, opportunities um, for these experiences to teach us, even if we wouldn't have necessarily chosen them. And then, you know, the second part is to get to look at challenge, change, and complexity and how these moments have actually formed us in our lives. So I think a practical example here is something that I call the reverse bucket list. And so I think most of us are familiar with the bucket list, right? The pleasurable things we want to do in our lives. The reverse bucket list is, you know, all the tough and gritty and awful and sad and disappointing and hurtful things that we hope to avoid. And yet, when we look on those times and we ask ourselves, how did this experience, you know, form me into the person I am today, we start to recast challenge as first and foremost being the fabric of our human experience. So we get to stop feeling guilty or ashamed uh, for those experiences and you know, we get to look on how have these challenges formed us or shaped us for the better into the person that we are today. I've never heard of the reverse bucket list before. I think it's a wonderful opportunity, as you say, to look back and review some of those past experiences. And now I'm also curious to know what inspired you to focus your current work and research on resilience? Yeah. When we think about our experiences, One of the beautiful things about writing this book, The Five Practices of Highly Resilient People, is it's given me tremendous opportunities for reflection. And so if you had asked me prior to writing the book, when did you become interested in resilience, I probably would have talked about, you know, going to graduate school and the people that I had the opportunity um, and the great pleasure and the great honor to work with in the midst of, you know, great pain or incredibly disorienting times. I'd um, talk about this tremendous population of uh, women living in in rural uh, Maryland on the east coast of the United States that were 
grappling with food and financial sustainability and getting a window into their lives and what created and engendered resilience. I talked to you about, you know, people that I've worked with in neuropsychology and rehabilitation psychology that had sustained brain injuries and spinal cord injuries. You know, but upon reflection and writing this book, what I found is very true to kind of the ethos of resilience, which is that, you know, resilience exists in all of us. It's it's the essence of being human. So we don't have to go out and find resilience or cultivate resilience or harness resilience or, you know, it's it's not something that lives outside of us, right? Resilience is, by definition, the very essence of what it means to be human. And, you know, how do I know that, right? Because you know, you and I have both lived through every disappointment, every rejection, every crisis, every moment of bad news, even when we thought we might not make it. And so when we look on our lives, we we actually get to appreciate the tremendous amount of resilience that occurs for us naturally. And when, when we start to see resilience as being the essence of being human, it means that we're not searching for it outside of ourselves, but actually searching within ourselves because it lives within us. So when I think about, you know, where did I first encounter resilience? Well, building on this idea of resilience being the essence of being human, Resilience found me or I found resilience within myself beginning at age 14 when I realized I was being faced with uh, a stalker who was, you know, coming to my window, coming to the window of my childhood bedroom, my my family home, and initially started by watching me get dressed in the morning when I didn't know he was there. And his behavior escalated over time, uh, over the course of my, you know, sort of high school career before I went off to university. And as a result of that experience, I developed post-traumatic stress disorder. So I think a lot of this work that I'm doing on resilience and have been doing in you know, the last three decades, right? The last 30 years since that all started when I was 14, it probably initially started with me saying, what's the framework? What's the blueprint for me to get through this tremendously difficult and disorienting time? And I'm deeply grateful that it's then brought me to two decades of, you know, of research, of looking at how other people have effectively faced challenge. Because I think what's happened is I've been able to take my own you know, my own trauma, right? My own series of tests and kind of turn them into my testimony personally, but also create a framework that then allows others to move through and to work through some of their most difficult 3C moments. Wow. Thank you very much for sharing. I think this notion of resilience being within each one of us is a very powerful message. And in your book, you you do talk about the five resilience practices, vulnerability, productive perseverance, connection, gratiosity, and possibility. I'd like to know more about the first one, vulnerability, because I, I think it's an important one for business leaders as they face organizational challenges. Can you tell me more about that? Beautiful. I love that. So after resilience, you know, vulnerability is one of the terms that is quite you know, misunderstood, right? Oftentimes we think of vulnerability as being completely transparent, telling everyone everything, you know, too much information, TMI, you know, putting it all out there. 
Um, we think of vulnerability oftentimes as being self self-deprecating, you know, as a way of, you know, putting ourselves down or, you know, if we're feeling insecure, sort of point out our flaws and faults before anyone else does. But in fact, none of those things are vulnerability. Vulnerability is about allowing our inside self, our thoughts, feelings, and experience to match the outside self that we share with the world. And to bring those two selves, the inside self and the outside self, together as closely as possible. And when we do that, what we call that in psychology is congruence. If I give a business example here, if as a leader, right, someone is in the midst of a a product launch or developing a new team or moving into a cross-functional position across an organization, right, it might be tempting to be invulnerable, to look like We've got everything sort of pulled together. But in fact, that level of professional vulnerability, right? Seeking out mentors and sponsors who can help guide us in this project launch. Reaching out to an executive coach in a moment of a a promotion or a cross-functional transition as we're moving across an enterprise and, and moving into a dramatically expanded role or a different part of the organization. Um, being able to raise our hands and say, you know, I haven't done this before and being able to seek out other people inside of an organization that have and that can come alongside us. And what we find is that in this sort of ability to be vulnerable in a professional or a personal setting, what that does is it allows us to have greater access to to knowledge, to information, to receive the support that we need in those moments, right? We need most in those moments when we're facing challenge. So vulnerability is very, very powerful in that way, both personally and professionally. And one of the things that gets in the way of vulnerability is something that I've referred to as the vulnerability bias. And the vulnerability bias is something that I uncovered as part of my two decades of inquiry and research and conversations with people. And what I found was we desire to be vulnerable, right? We we might even think to ourselves that we want to be seen and known to a much greater degree. And yet when we sort of make that move mentally to say we're going to do that, there's sort of this hardwired voice in our head that says, no, 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 don't do that. That's a terrible idea. And in fact, the voice goes on to say, if you allow yourself to be truly seen and known, the three L's will occur. People won't like you, they won't love you, and they might leave. And the three L's are a powerful prohibition against our ability to show up authentically, and it blocks our vulnerabilities. So what we get to do in moments of vulnerability, whether it's with family or friends or colleagues at work, is first and foremost to identify the vulnerability bias, to recognize that that's something that exists, and then to look at how we have the opportunity to sort of peel back some of those layers. And in these really sort of beautiful moments of inflection or the three C's like we talked about or a you know and, and by inflection I mean say a promotion or a new opportunity or a, a new project or an expanded scope of responsibility to not simply act like we've got it all pulled together but in fact to reach out to our network and to our connections and to people who have expertise in these areas and to be vulnerable enough to ask for help. You know, I think it was really helpful to have a deeper look into the definition of vulnerability. I'm interested to know about the link 
between succession planning and talent retention. Can you tell us more about how business leaders and HR teams can apply these resilience practices to career mobility planning for their employees? Beautiful. I love that. So one of the areas that I'm just delighted to have the opportunity to consult on deeply with the Fortune 500 here in the United States and organizations across the globe is this idea of succession planning and talent strategy. So prior to founding my own company, Resilience Leadership Institute, uh, I actually served as the head of executive development and talent strategy at Nike. And so that meant that for me personally, I was aligned with our C-suite, our CEO at the time, and the growth and development of those that held the highest offices in the company. And then my team and I looked after the growth, maturation, development, assessment of strengths and leadership skill of our top 400 vice presidents across the globe. And so we were very, very focused on this idea of um, succession management or succession planning and talent strategy. And so a number of organizations now are adopting values or competencies around resilience, and they want to know how can we suffuse this concept or this competency or this value of resilience into our talent strategy, into our talent planning, into how we think about growing and advancing our talent across the organization. And so one of the things that we're able to do is to look at those five practices and to be able to use those five practices as a framework to evaluate our existing talent or one of the ways that we evaluate our existing talent. So one of the ways that we do that, we have an assessment called the Resilient Practices inventory. And what this is, it's a 75-item assessment, 15 items for each of the five practices. And we look at how people demonstrate each of the five practices behaviorally in a professional setting. And then when we're able to use this assessment, we can use it either as a, as a diagnostic to assess, you know, we are all resilient, of course, to assess the strengths and opportunities for a particular leader's uh, resilience and and chart how we might develop them over time through executive coaching and other modalities. We can also look at a series of people um, inside of the organization and, and sort of their level of resilience. And as we do in kind of talent strategy and planning, be able to rack and stack our talent and bench strength internally and also allow that to inform us from a talent acquisition standpoint what are these skills and talents relative to resilience that we want to be thinking about in terms of acquiring those talents externally outside of the organization in addition to building those talents and strengths and capabilities internally? Um, so we have our assessment, we have the five practices, and what we often do is we work with organizations to develop basically the talent planning materials for talent review that allow HR leaders and key department heads or leaders of verticals inside of organizations to be able to assess their people's resilience. Oftentimes, I sit inside of those meetings, and then we're able to, based on the five practices, based on the resilient practices inventory assessment, and how we identify that people get to enhance 
and develop their resilience over time, we're then able to identify development actions for our key leaders and for our high potentials inside of those meetings. And then oftentimes, because you know, we know, you know, if there's a, a ball that sort of gets dropped in, in talent review and talent planning, it's the experience of going back to that person, of sharing at a high level as a high potential, what was discussed about them in that meeting, and then you know, providing opportunities for them to develop and grow aligned with the organization's capabilities and where we're really pressing in inside of the five practices to develop resilience. And so that's often my responsibility to go back to individuals, to be their executive coach, to share the outcomes of the talent review meeting, and then to align with those individuals on creating and implementing a development plan that will allow them to ultimately enhance and amplify their resilience inside of their role and across the influence that they have within their organization. Now, before we wrap up this episode, as an executive coach yourself, how do you personally assess the benefits of coaching? Oh, gosh. (laughs) That's such a tough question because, you know, executive coaching is so powerful. Um, Most recently, I was working with a client who, when he and I began working together, he was a partner in his investment firm. He came to me and, and shared with me that he was really very seriously considering leaving the organization. And if he had left the organization, he would have taken a contract with him that essentially would have paid the organization $1.2 million annually over the course of five years, so $6 million total. So one of the things that I love to do when I'm wrapping up coaching engagements with my clients is I love to ask them, you know, if price was no object, if you had all the money in the world, let's reflect on your experience in the last nine to 12 months with the idea that price is what you pay and value is what you get, what is the dollar amount that you as a coaching client would place on the value that you received in this series of coaching sessions? And so this coaching session uh, for nine months, this gentleman paid $60,000. He said, the monetary value that he would place on the insights and the aha moments and how he grew and changed personally and professionally, he said $600,000. And then he went on to say that had he left the firm, he would have taken over five years $6 million of revenue just in this one contract that he had with him. And so for me, that was such a tremendously powerful a way for us to talk about his coaching experience because oftentimes it's so difficult to sort of monetize this work that we do inside of organizations. But his investment and the organization's investment of $60,000 in him led to a 10x experience of valuing how he had grown and developed at the level of $600,000. And it also led to 100x return on the organization's investment because he stayed with the organization and they did not lose that contract that was valued at $6 million. Yes, absolutely. It is a huge challenge to really measure the return on investment of coaching. And what a great example you were able to share with us today. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Taryn Marie Stasekal. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. 
You can find Taryn's book, The Five Practices of Highly Resilient People on Amazon and other booksellers. And thank you all for listening to the Spark Leadership Podcast. Please join us in two weeks for the next episode. You can subscribe to Spark Leadership on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you want more information about Coach Hub's programs for your organization, please connect with us at coachhub.com.